This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, and this episode is Unconventional Shale Development. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series that features in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. Before the coronavirus pandemic, 100 million barrels of oil each day fueled global commerce. Demand is significantly down from that mark, and the downturn has had multiple industry impacts. Add to that the pressures of global warming and water conservation, and the scope and speed of needed change expands further. On June 24, 2020, Regina Mayer, KPMG Global and U.S. Head of Energy, connected with Holly Ladani, Chief Executive Officer and President for Select Energy Services, Inc., Independent Board Director of Noble Energy, Inc., Trustee of Rice University, and a Board Member of Junior Achievement of Southeast Texas. Well, thanks again for joining me today, Holly. It's wonderful to have you on the program. Let's begin by describing the Select Energy Services business. You are the CEO. It's all about water. Tell me more. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's always fantastic to get to talk about um, you know, what Select does. And if you just step back, we operate all across North America, primarily focused on unconventional shale development. And when you think about what that process involves, it's really just, um, it requires a tremendous amount of water, it requires uh, propent sand, and it requires chemicals. And when you think about our business, it's all about the water, as you just said. And, and we do supplement that, though, with our chemistry, which is, which is quite important. We're involved from the very beginning of sourcing the water all the way through to the treatment of that water, the reuse of that produced water and and handle all the logistics uh, effectively in between for the water. And then, as I said, the, the chemicals is, is quite important. So we work closely with our customers on that front as well. You need to understand the water chemistry so that we can then supply them the most effective package of chemicals um, for their well. So essentially, in a nutshell, we, we cover the full water life cycle um, for shale development in, in all the North American basins. Yeah, it's, it's very comprehensive, and it's an end-to-end solution, uh, water being a critical element. But water is a crucial resource for the planet, and shale, shale wells consume literally millions of gallons of water. Uh, when I was preparing for this and reading your materials, I read as much as 21 million gallons during the well completion cycle. So I'm sure you're doing things to try to recycle the water, regenerate it, preserve water as a resource. Tell us more about that and things that you're seeing, technologies that you're seeing that we can deploy for greater water conservation. Yeah, that's a good data point because if you think about wells, and I'll, I'll think about the Permian Basin because that's a lot of what people, you know, what comes to mind when they think about unconventional development, but you could use half a, half a million barrels of water, and that's 21 million gallons. We, you know, we tend to think in gallons as individuals. In the select world, we, we think about things in barrels, but uh, it, it's a tremendous amount of water. And if you think through in the Permian Basin, if in, a, in a given year, if you were going to complete 5,000 wells, that's 2.5 billion barrels of water. Um, I don't even know how many swimming pools that would take, but it, it is a massive amount of water. 
But at the same time, in the Permian Basin, the, the, the wells are actually producing over 10 billion barrels of water a year. And that's, that's largely the water that's naturally occurring down in the formation. It's not the water that's being pumped down and coming back. It's just this shale rock, in addition to the oil and gas, has a lot of water in it. And so the obvious answer is, uh, how do you get that, that your, your long and your short water, how do you get that to fit together and, and utilize that, that produced water and, and reduce the amount of water we're taking out of, out of the ground? And, and even these days when there's not a fresh water source, keep in mind that, that a fresh water source that agriculture might need, that's not what people drill down. They go well below that and they get a very salty brackish water that, that can't be used for other things but you're still pulling resources out. So we've, we've worked hard as an industry because there, there were two primary challenges that one was just, if you think about it, um, as you're pumping a frac fluid system down, the quality of that water um, is important and, and trying to keep it um, consistent was very important. And, and you built a, a chemical frac fluid system to, to match it and then you, you needed to sort of run with that program. So that was one of the issues with using produced water, because as you might, imagine, might imagine, the quality of it changes uh, fairly dramatically as, as it's coming out of different wells, different locations. And, and location was the other challenge, the, the logistics. And if you're, the majority of your wells are sitting in somewhere around Midland, and your completion program is somewhere near Pecos, Texas, as you can imagine, it's quite expensive to move a lot of water um, that right. sort of distance. So what, what you saw operators do is that they would they would produce the water in Midland, dispose of it, and then they would buy new water down in Pecos. So what we've been able to do on, um, and it's probably been within the last three to four years, we've really made a lot of progress on both of those fronts. So the, the first is around the chemistry. We've, we've developed um, chemistry that allows an operator to use produced water. Now, it, it oftentimes isn't straight produced water. We, we do some treatment to it ahead of time, get solids and bacteria and things like that out of it. But then we're able to have a whole uh, line of chemical products that now it allows a varying water quality and a not as pristine water quality. So that that's helped, I mean, probably more than anything. But the other is the logistics. We've just gotten so much more efficient. Um, we've made investments in the right sort of equipment and to be able to move water much further distances at a lower cost. So when you add all those things together, what you're seeing in places like the Permian Basin is there are several operators that their goal is to use all produced water. We're not there yet by any means. There's still plenty of opportunity. But I think as an industry, we'll move a lot closer to that in the next five years. Yeah, I was going to ask. That's a total game changer to be able to use the water that's naturally occurring in the well. Sort of what percentage are we able to use at this point on the way to trying to get 100% use? In the Permian Basin, I, I keep going to that basin just because that's where the best opportunity is, where you have the most water, um, and, and it's such a large part of what's happening in the U.S. right now. I would say we, we might have gotten to where 30% of the water being used in new well completions was, um, was produced water. That's fallen back now just because you really need to have a cadence to your completion programs to plan ahead right. to do all of this. But um, it, it just it goes to show you we still have a lot of opportunity um, yeah, because no, we're, we're, we're probably not quite a third of the way there. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. 
Okay, well, you brought it up, our current situation. Uh, as we we're having this conversation, it's almost the end of June, and we've had a, a major loss in fossil fuel demand coupled with a lack of supply constraint that conspired to send crude prices through the floor. Fortunately, we are seeing some rebound, but we're still well off our January WTI high. I would think the oil field services sector in particular has been um, highly affected. But tell us what it's like to be in the services sector and how you're steering select through these incredibly challenging times. Yeah, you know, for anybody that knows my history, I've been associated with either industries or companies that are commodity uh, cyclical. And there are two ways to play that. You can either apply leverage or not. And I've definitely learned from my past that when you're running a commodity cyclical business that you can't hedge out, you really shouldn't have any debt. And so that was an incredible, incredibly important learning for me. And, and as such, we were fortunate enough that, that we entered the downturn, Regina, that with no debt and we have cash in our balance sheet. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of um, service companies that can say that right now. And, and it's going to be a struggle because I don't think that this is a short-lived um, occurrence. And, but, I, but also what I would say is that it's incredibly important that for my team and how we're approaching this is, is we're not letting a healthy balance sheet drive any sort of complacency. So just like everybody else, we're, we're having to reduce costs aggressively, and, and we essentially go line by line in all of our expenditures, and, and we're systematically taking those out. And, and as you might imagine, um, people is a, is a huge part of, of our cost structure. So we've lost um, an incredible number of, of very well-qualified, uh, well-intentioned folks that, that have been an important part for, you know, select success in the years that, that we unfortunately, in this sort of environment with these kind of activity levels, we just, we, we can't afford to sustain, sustain the cost structure. So I would say oil field services in general, we're all playing defense. Um, some will likely be, you know, more successful and being more, um, more timely in that than others. And then there'll, there'll be those of us that aren't doing this with the overhang of debt, which is, which is also an important factor. Definitely a good, a better place to be, but clearly very, very tough times. Do you, are you starting to see a rebound yet? I mean, it's WTI nosed above 40. Are, does that make producers um, more bullish, or what's that feel like in the field? You know, we are having customers start to talk to us about re-engaging some of their activities here and coming up in the, in the third quarter. What I would say, though, is that as an industry, we need to, you know, I'm, I'm a, a bit of a glass half empty gal when it comes to how you prepare for these things and that prepare <laughs> yeah. for the worst. And then, right. if it, you know, you can be posit positively surprised by it. And it's so much easier to react um, to, to try to re-engage your workforce than it is to have gotten that wrong and, and carry the burden um, that, that comes with that. But I, I'm not planning on a, what I'll call a meaningful recovery for probably 12 to 18 months. I think second quarter was our bottom from an activity mm -hmm. level perspective, but, you know, and, and from a percentage increase, it's probably going to feel pretty nice as we go through the balance of this year and the first half of next, but, but we fell so far and so low that when you look at the back half of next year, it, it won't be close to where we were in 2019, in my opinion, and, and that's how we're going to manage the company and make sure we're prepared for that. Well, I often get asked by media and, and analysts 
about the demise of shale, um, you know, and its long-term viability. What are your thoughts, given the current pricing environment? Will U.S. shale survive, and will it even continue to potentially thrive? You know, it's interesting because I had a debate about this about, I don't know, it was, it was right as COVID was coming in, so it would have been back in March, with um, a CEO of another services company that largely supports the Middle East, and and his view was that shale, you know, wasn't going to have a place, and, and you know, the punchline of my answer is I think it does, and it was a very lively um, dinner discussion that, that was apparently noticed by many as we heard the next day that we, we were fairly entertaining, <laughs> but um, it's, you know, I think where you have to start is that what's the break-even price for oil on a global basis, and, you know, what oil price does the rest of the world need to balance their budget, right? So if you think about it, there's a reason that OPEC or OPEC Plus made the decisions um, that they did to, to try to, after they put the supply on the market, to take it off, and it became very clear that oil in the 20s doesn't really work for anybody, even though the right. break-even of, say, Saudi's rock is much lower than that, they need their profit to be very meaningful to support their programs for, you know, for their, their, their societies. And, and so we figured out what doesn't work. I think if you're in the 50s or above, then it's pretty clear that shale will easily compete even under, I'll say, today's technology. Um, it, I think, though, somewhere in that 30 to 40, it's, it's a lot more challenging, right? And it's just that's the, the part of um, the equation that, that's going to require uh, a knowledge of what does the rest of the world really uh, need. But then I think in the 30s and 40s what it means is that the U.S. has to continue to innovate and we have to apply more technology and that's going to drive the break-even price for U.S. shale down so that it still may not be competitive with the cost to produce in other parts of the world, but it will get our cost down enough that it, it will provide a profit margin that, that makes it worth investing in um, based on where that, that clearing price will end up being. Right, right, and never count out U.S. ingenuity, that's for sure. Yeah. So I did have another CEO on my channel at the start of COVID who is the CEO of an offshore services company, a drilling company, and I asked, because I actually thought deep water was going to be more at risk than shale, and he argued the opposite because of, you know, Gulf of Mexico, really long lead times, uh, strong backlogs, uh, more commitment to you know, those longer-term projects. So he felt like he was more resilient than uh, shale services providers. What, what do you, what's your take, deep water versus shale? What's my resilient onshore-offshore? You can probably guess the answer, right, given I'm in shale uh, and he's an offshore. <laughs> that we, we, might, we might come out on different ends of that. But, you know, I, I absolutely believe offshore and major projects have a place um, in supporting global supply. I think when you have the volatility that you're seeing in commodity prices today, it's incredibly hard for a, um, an operator to say, I'm going to commit and I'm going to approve the, you know, billions of dollars of capital um, for oil that's not coming out of the ground for five to seven years. And to, to think that we know what prices are going to be five to seven years from now, it, it really is tough. And what we're seeing, at least from some of our major um, international, you know, fully integrated oil um, customers, 
is that the shale it has such a it's a much shorter cycle time and it's less risk for them to understand you know what the price for that oil is going to be by the time they have the production flowing and so we're continuing to see them uh, put put sufficient capital to shale I won't say it's taking it away from offshore but I think if anything in the very near term we could see more capital moving towards the shorter cycle production and then we get back to something where we're more balanced and and we start to see more investment in some of those longer lead time offshore um, opportunities right it certainly it helps balance your portfolio and give you something mm-hmm. that's uh, more flexible and agile to be able to respond. Right, right. We we often talk about or we hear about consolidation as well, that um, there's still too much fragmentation in the services side as well as shale producers side. Do you anticipate consolidation happening? I do, and and it actually it needs to happen on the on the upstream side as well as as the services side that, as you highlight, completely fragmented. And with that, there was this lack of, well, I'll say lack of capital discipline, but I would say that really management teams were catering to what Wall Street was asking for, which was growth. And so it's, it's a lot easier to make decisions and manage a business when all you're being asked to do is to, to grow it versus actually get returns and generate cash flow. And yeah, exactly. that's what we saw for a decade. So people could come mm-hmm. in and that's how it got so fragmented. But now that, that we're all going to be held accountable for generating cash flow and generating returns, that you have to have consolidation to support that. And so I think it's healthy. You know, it'll be painful as, as we go through this process in the coming years. But, but I think it we come out on the other side of it, a, a much healthier industry um, on, on the backside of the consolidation that, that, yeah, I absolutely do believe will happen. Right. Well, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, we just haven't seen it yet, so mm-hmm. anxiously awaiting. Mm-hmm. When, you ha- when you lack visibility um, for your own business, it is so hard to sit in a room and try to talk to somebody else about theirs and to come to any sort of agreement on sort of the valuations and how you should think about what a combined company would look like. So I think as we start to get a little more visibility, that, that we'll start to see, um, you know, as soon as I say this, I'm, I'm putting myself out there, but I, I really do think you'll start to see some momentum behind this. And maybe it's six months or 12 months, but, but I, I, I do firmly believe that it has to happen. Right, right. Well, that's, that's a very positive, um, productive outlook. I, you're right. There's so much uncertainty. It's just hard to chart your course for the next two months and, you know, whether we're going to reopen offices and, and things of that nature as the virus continues to evolve. So yeah. making big strategic bets in this environment, it's undoubtedly a tough trigger to pull right now. Yeah. So, so let's pivot to another topic. Great. One of the hottest topics at the beginning of 2020 you know, before other events overtook the discussion was climate change and decarbonization and coming out of the World Economic Forum in Davos and the fires that were ravaging Australia, it was a really hot topic. So what are your thoughts on the energy transition itself? Does it continue in its importance or does it take a back burner? Yeah, and as you might imagine, we, we talk and think about that a lot as we consider our strategy and, and participation in the space and 
but as part of it, I'll tell you, one of the first things we, we do is to ground ourselves and I'll say keep the magnitude and scale of, you know, global energy needs in, in mind. So before this downturn, um, the demand for oil was just over 100 million barrels a day. Now, clearly, we saw that fall, and it, it's not, I, I don't know if it was 15, 20, 25 million barrels a day, but there was huge demand destruction as economies were shut down. And, and as we talked about earlier, that's starting to come back back a little bit, but we're well short um, of 100 million barrels a day. Right. But, but you still have, I'll call it, some really smart people that live in this day in and day out, like Rystad or S&P Global Platts. And when you look at the world the way they're looking at it more holistically and globally, you know, they're still projecting significant oil demand for the next few decades. I think recently I saw that, that Rystad reduced their peak oil demand from, it was something like 107.5 million barrels a day down to, say, 106.5 to 107 million barrels a day. So they did shave some off. And in Global Platts, I think their 24 uh, 2040 uh, forecast came down 3 million barrels a day. So we're still talking about a massive amount of, of energy that will, will likely still be supplied by um, oil. And, and my take is that I'm going to live long enough, though, that I'll see peak oil demand. I, I do believe that. We, right. we are approaching the peak. But I also believe that my grandchildren are going to continue to live in a world where hydrocarbons are a meaningful part of the energy supply, but you know, all that said, we'd be ignoring history to argue that we won't go through another energy transition. Um, it, I do believe it's inevitable, but but I also think, like the past, these transitions take time, and and I think decarbonization is such an important focus that the whole industry is taking very seriously, and 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 we need to find ways to reduce the footprint um, that's that's required, you know, as we extract oil and gas today, uh, while we, we find ways through technology um, and through advancements such that we can displace oil and gas over time with, with resources that really do have a lower net environmental footprint. That, and this is the important part, that's still relatively competitive on a cost front. And that, right. to me, is the, the biggest bogey that I don't know how to put some sort of odds on it because if we find that globally the citizens of the world are willing to pay more for energy in a meaningful amount this will get accelerated significantly but when you think about what's going on you know not just in the united states but you have so much of the the world population still in poverty that that we need to lift out of poverty that takes energy when you think about this big picture and globally I absolutely be, believe it will happen. We need to be a part of it, but I think it's going to take time. So we have to find more efficient ways to extract oil and gas in the near term while we find that new technology. Right, right, and decarbonize the hydrocarbons in the in the meantime. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about your career, Holly. You've had a very successful career, and I I want to ask you some of that detail. But before I go into that, I. I you were the CFO of Dynagy in the 2000s and have an experience in commodities that you, that you mentioned at the outset. We just saw crude settle at negative $37 on April 20th of this year. And you mentioned crude volatility um, as, as being a key thing that you can't hedge your way out of it. What was your reaction when you saw that number and you know, put your old trading 
trading hat on, what was your observations and reactions? Yeah, there were a lot of traders salivating, I can tell you that, um, <laughs> because it, it was such a weird dynamic, right? I remember we were in daily calls at this point um, within my organization as we are trying to uh, figure out how to, how to manage through the crisis, and, and I kept preparing my team to tell them, you're going to see prices uh, for oil continue to fall, and, and, and here I thought I was being fairly prophetic and saying, you could see single-digit oil prices, so make sure the teams <laughs> don't, you know, right. don't panic. We know it's out there. It's okay, because sometimes just helping people feel better that their leaders have some sense of what's going on, that, that can go a long way. But I never thought that you'd see negative, and, and that certainly got a lot of people's attention. I think when you step back, though, what you have to keep in mind is that is not where the vast majority of crew traded, right? That was just a clearing price, and you found people that got, they, they got stuck in physical contracts because I think you had people participating that didn't fully appreciate how oil markets and how you settle different contracts works. And so it ended up that, that there was a small amount that, that you, people had to get bailed out, and they essentially had to pay somebody to go make that physical delivery for them. So I think at the end of the day, it, it wasn't a, as, as much of a uh, visibility into what the value of oil was right then as it was just these weird dynamics on settling out contracts. But it just goes to show you in my mind that, there's nothing normal about 2020, and there's nothing normal about yeah. this crisis and what's going on. And I, I like I said, I, there were traders. I'm sure they love the volatility and, and everything associated with it. But it got um, all of us thinking that this is not not the world is normal um, or what we've seen in the past. So we need to be prepared for for pretty much anything. So what words of wisdom would you offer others who might start in professional services and then move to industry? And what were some of the key things that you learned along the way that helped you be a successful CEO? Yeah. You know, it is a journey, right? And, and what's important is that you learn. And, and, and so when I look back, though, the, the, maybe there are a couple of things in particular that stood out for me that professional services, at least as I participated in it, that that really helpful. Project management is one of those. And then just working, working with such a diverse group of people, either within your firm or at your, your clients. And if you think about what the priorities of a, of a CEO are, you know, it starts with developing and setting the strategy for the company. But then it's, it's all about allocating resources and building the right team. And those latter two, you know, yeah. Those skill sets are, are you, you have to have them in spades to be successful in a professional services organization. Um, and so I think that for me at least, that put me in a great position to, to be thoughtful about managing, you know, a larger organization, being a great leader, all those things, um, you, you're able to get that within a professional services. And then the transition to the so the other side to the industry is really just selecting the industry that's going to get you motivated, and, and then you learn it inside and out, and that will help you develop then the right strategic outlook for it that you can package with, with the skill sets you learned on the services side. That's great. Those, those are very foundational skills that you leverage throughout your career, and you pinpointed those nicely. So what positive message or closing remarks would you leave with our energy industry listeners, Holly? 
You know, I'm a big believer that when we're put in positions of adversity, it's where we really shine. Um, and and to date, frankly, when I think about U.S. shale in particular, the, the advancements that we've made um, to get more and more oil and gas out of the ground, it's been largely through brute force. Now, it's been supplemented by, by some technology gains. The same way Select has invested in new chemistry, in automation, in, in being able to capture data that we provide back to our customers and, and allowing them to, to gain frac efficiency. So, so it's not like we haven't had technological advancement, but it's primarily we've just been pushing a lot more water with a lot more force to crack open the rock to, to let the oil and gas come back. So, and, and that has been absolutely necessary for us to continue to be competitive. But if we're going to continue to bring down that break-even price, for U.S. shale, we and, and that's what essentially allows us to be competitive on a global scale. We have to continue to invest in technology, and and as I said, that that really comes that advancement, that ingenuity. It's when we're under pressure, and when you think about the last decade, the the industry's break even for U.S. shale started somewhere seventy five, eighty dollars, and and look at where we are today. And so I think that's where the opportunity comes. That's the bright spot for us. I think there's plenty of running room for us. And, and one, one quote I use for my team, and particularly in the times that we're in like this and through other downturns, there, there's a great um, quote from Henry Ford that I really think it does apply here, that when everything seems to be going against you, remember that the plane takes off against the wind, not with it. So I think this um, time frame, we will look back upon it, and it, it's what we needed. To, to continue to get better at what we do, and and we will exit all of this. And the question is, is it 12 months, 18 months, 24 months? None of us can really know, but but I, I firmly believe we'll be better for it, and, and we'll have applied um, technology, as I said, better break-evens, decarbonization, all these things that we need to be focused on. So that, that keeps me actually quite optimistic about the space. Uh, you know, knowing that we we have some tough times still um, between now and that time frame, but but it's what gets me up in the morning. Very inspiring and good to point out that we did start with seventy five, eighty dollar break evens when when this all began. Thank you again for joining me, Holly. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. So informative, and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on unconventional shale development. A transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. And be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.